We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will meet Premier Doug Ford this afternoon to discuss health care. Here's hoping they accomplish more than just talk. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine bringing the guests in. Will Weber on the board. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, lots going on today, including the Prime Minister in Ontario not only making a housing announcement uh, or a regurgitated housing announcement way back uh, from the budget uh, in Kitchener today, but also meeting with Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario, and uh, apparently about health care. That's going to be a closed-door meeting. Uh, apparently there isn't any sort of uh, uh, question and answer or report uh, meeting with reporters afterwards. Uh, so we're going to have to wait and see. That's coming up at about 4 o'clock this afternoon that the Premier and the Prime Minister are going to meet. Uh, so there you have it. So, um, you know, those pretty much the big the big stories of the day, other than Canadians are angry. <laughs> and, you know, I've been reading some interesting articles on this, and we'll get somebody on this poll a little later on. Uh, you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you what it's like. You know what it's like. But, you know, Canadians are known for being so polite and so, no, you go. No, no, you, you go. No, you first. No, you first. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and now we're all angry. Which is uh, kind of odd, a kind of an, an odd place to be at, uh, considering we are, after all, Canada, eh? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, there was uh, some news in regard to this meeting and some health care today. Let's play you some clips of there. Uh, Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park uh, Bureau Chief, talking about what the Premier and the Prime Minister could possibly be meeting about today. Right now, all the provinces get about $42 billion every year. The provinces want another roughly $30 billion uh, to help pay for the additional costs of health care. I mean, I think we've seen over the last couple of years just how important the health care system is and how vulnerable the health care system can be as well. All right, that's uh, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, uh, talking about uh, what is happening. We're going to talk to him, touch base with him coming up in just a few minutes and get a little bit more expanded on this and uh, what is going on in today's meeting. Also, Premier, before this meeting uh, at noon today in the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo area, talking about housing, here's the first clip, uh, Will, on, uh, on the Prime Minister talking about housing and what needs to be done. Over the past years and the past months, I've talked with many Canadians who are worried about being able to afford a place to live. This is as true for people looking to buy a home as for those who live in rental housing. We're seeing prices going up across the country. So we know we need to build supply and find innovative solutions. And that's what today's announcement is all about. All right, talking about uh, building 17,000 homes uh, with $2 billion over the next 10 years across the country. And the Prime Minister adding this is no silver bullet. Tackling housing affordability is a complex problem, and there is no one silver bullet. The fact is, simplistic solutions are simply not going to solve the problem. 
But announcements like today's move us all forward and give more people a place to call home and a real and fair chance at success. All right, there you have it. Uh, what that means, what that translates to, uh, your guess is as good as mine. At the end of the day, we are stuck because we have a very, very high demand for a housing and a very, very low supply. So how how quickly can you build things? How quickly can you uh, move people around? Again, I like health care. I think this is something we're going to be playing catch-up with uh, for, a, for an extended period of time, uh, especially when you don't build. And, I mean, nobody has – building has been a bad word. Let's be honest. I mean, building has been a bad word unless it's some sort of uh, uh, environmental project. Uh, Environmentalists have spoke up against urban sprawl, stopping any new development uh, in that direction. NIMBYism within the city limits... Which is why they're asking the mayors or the prime uh, the premiers asking to, to bring more power to the mayors. NIMBYism within the in, in the city limits has stopped proper interdevelopment. So where we, we are, where we are, we're stuck with nobody's building anything. And now and again, to me, this was just amazing in my time on the planet that all four of the major political parties, whether you were Green, whether you were NDP, whether you were Liberal, whether you were Conservative, all now in the last election had hefty campaigns to build a million homes. Where was that thinking five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Uh, right now, it, it appears we're just uh, we're applying Band-Aids. All right. They're going to meet this afternoon, the premier and the prime minister at about four o'clock this afternoon. Colin DeMello will give us uh, an update on what all that will entail uh, coming up moments from now. All right. Uh, big day in Ontario. The prime minister in uh, Kitchener, Waterloo area earlier uh, today around the noon hour to talk about a housing strategy and. And later on this afternoon, going to meet with uh, Premier Doug Ford, uh, hopefully in regard to health care, to get a little bit more light on what they will be talking about, what's on the agenda. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. He's with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Colin, what is on the agenda today? Well, I, I actually just had a quick conversation with Premier Doug Ford in the halls of Queen's Park here, um, and he told me that there were at least three items that he wants to raise and a potential fourth one as well. Uh, the main item is the Canada Health Transfer. So the, the federal government has been... Um, you know, holding health care transfers to about 22% to all of the provinces. And the provinces really have wanted more money out of the federal government to the tune of about 35% um, in terms of what their, their yearly budgets are. So they want, you know, billions of dollars more, about, you know, uh, 25 to $30 billion additional. $10 billion of that would come to Ontario. So the Premier has been touting this for the last four years, that Ontario and other provinces need a bigger share of the health care pie coming from the federal government. And so what better way to kind of make that case than to do it directly with the prime minister himself? And so that's, you know, the number one thing the premier told me that he's going to be raising. The second one is going to be about affordable housing. I'm not sure exactly what the premier is looking to do here, but, you know, every level of government has been talking about affordable housing recently, uh, thanks to, you know, the red hot housing market. Uh, the prime minister, as you mentioned, was in Kitchener today. He was making an announcement to spend $2 billion to help build 17,000 homes across the country. So that's obviously not enough to help solve any issue in Ontario. So, but that's one of the issues that the Premier wants to talk to him about. Then the third one is um, infrastructure and immigration. The Premier kind of indicated to me that you know, the cost of certain items in terms of building materials is going up, and so they're looking to have a conversation about that. And immigration as well. Currently, Ontario is trying to 
uh, have a larger share of immigrants that it can directly select. So, you know, every province has these streams that you apply to if you want to immigrate to Ontario. I want to apply to the healthcare stream or I want to apply to uh, you know, a skills trade stream. And the province wants greater say over how many of those applicants it can allow into the province versus just generally having the federal government pick and choose who comes in. So those are the four main topics of conversation that are going to be coming up today. When would this have been planned, Colin? Was this something that was planned in in the past, or did it just come up this week? It seems to have fallen in everyone's lap. Well, we kind of found out about it yesterday. (laughs) But, you know, these things can sometimes be a little bit organic. Like if the prime minister, you know, happened to be in town to make an announcement in Kitchener, then perhaps they say, okay, let's, you know, have a meeting with the premier. But also on top of that, you know, there, there has to be an ideological overlap here for these two to meet. The last time the Prime Minister actually came to Queen's Park was back in 2018. That was his first and really only time coming to Queen's Park other than today. Now, the Premier has gone to Ottawa a few times to meet with the Prime Minister at, um, you know, at his office. And, and ever since the pandemic, the Prime Minister and the Premier really have been sick as thieves. In fact, just before the election campaign, uh, the Prime Minister made a, a pretty big um, automotive announcement with the Premier and not with the Ontario Liberals, and they were quite miffed about that. So the relationship has changed, and and this signifies maybe a turning of the page. They're no longer enemies. They're more uh, friends with some common um, objectives in mind, and they feel like they can get more done by working together. So it's fascinating uh, to listen to what you're just describing as this relationship and how it's evolved and how at least they do seem to be working together. And thank goodness for that. When will we find out more about the health care? Is there any sort of agenda to talk to any of the reporters or, or so on about any of this? Yeah, the premier is going to be speaking with journalists right after uh, this meeting happens. Uh, so that should be perhaps at about five o'clock this afternoon. The prime minister apparently is not going to be taking questions from uh, reporters about this meeting specifically. Um, but, but we'll hear a little bit more from the premier. I mean, the big question to all of these is, you know, when premiers and prime ministers meet, what's the actual product here? What do we actually mm. see as a result of these meetings? And, and, you know, more often than not, it's nothing. You know, mm, yeah. you're not actually going to see some big joint announcement coming out of it today. And if there was some kind of a joint announcement, they would have hammered out the details weeks ago with their staff, and they would have just been here to make this announcement. This is just more of a, you know, friendly meet and greet to raise issues, to talk about issues. And for the premier, perhaps to just slowly keep chipping away at this one issue of the Canada health transfer. He, the, the premier might be under no illusions that he's not going to get a deal today. But, you know, maybe this is the conversation that leads to opening up the door to uh, increased health care transfers from the federal government. So I think that's what they might be banking on. Healthcare certainly top of mind for a lot of Canadians right now, that's for sure. Uh, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now, if you listen to the show, you know I love the polls. I love I love the surveys. I love to gauge um, where Canada's head's at, where Canadians' heads are at, especially during a global pandemic. I mean, it's been a very bizarre two and a half years, to say the least. Well, Polaris Strategic Insights has launched a new monthly rage index. 
It's not, you're talking about rage index and Canada in the same sentence. Does that seem right? No, you go first. No, you go first. No, please, you go first. No, 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 no. You go first. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Really, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and in its inaugural survey, 83% of respondents feel angry about inflation, 79% about gas, two-thirds still on the Freedom Convoy, uh, more than half, 50%, uh, 57% about airport delays. That's just a peak. Let's bring in Dan Arnold, Chief Strategy Officer Polara, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm, unlike most Canadians, I'm not angry. I'm in a good mood and uh, happy to chat here. <laughs> oh, man. Are you surprised? Because, again, like I, I, I fooled in the intro there, uh, normally we're known to be very polite people. Are you surprised we're so angry? Have you ever seen this before? Yeah, I mean, Canadians usually uh, keep their anger on the ice. Uh, you know, it's not something that uh, you would necessarily associate with uh, with Canadians. I think that's why we, we kind of wanted to do this poll here was because, at the start of the summer, there was a sense that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, everything's going to be great. People are going to be in a great mood. It's going to be an amazing summer. But pretty much every barbecue myself or my Polar colleagues were at this summer. Um, people were complaining about the cost of bacon or about airport delays or passport renewals or, or something. Uh, so we felt that it was you know important to quantify this and actually see what the level of uh, anger is out there. Because it certainly, you know, anecdotally at least, seemed like Canadians were in a grumpy mood. And that's basically what the poll results uh, back up. Oh, now you've got and you've got lots of results that show that. Let me ask you this question, Dan. Is this for everyone? I mean, because, you know, sometimes politicians and such will try to gauge it towards certain groups or segments of the population and and even now gender. Um, But it, it appears that everyone's a little cranky right now. Yeah, we really see this coast to coast. I mean, there's some differences. You know, it's a, a little bit more anger in the prairie provinces, a little bit less in Quebec. Um, you know, men and women was interesting. The overall rage index score is the same for men and women, but very different things that they're angry about. Men are much more angry towards government, about some of these delays at airports, uh, whereas women are really getting upset right now by the uh, economic situation, the things like inflation, housing prices. Um, so, you know, different things for different Canadians in terms of what gets you what gets you upset. But um, you know, it seems like everybody right now has got something that is at least uh, getting under their skin. You know, poll, uh, polling companies, research companies, they cover a lot of things. Have you ever, did you ever think we would end up or you would end up introducing a rage index? No, I mean, it's something you would think uh, would be coming out of U.S. Uh, polling more so mm-hmm. than in uh, in Canada. And just, uh, you know, just last week, I actually saw a poll in the U.S. that was asking about, you know, do you think that the U.S. is going to descend into civil war? And I hope we don't have to ask that question in Canada anytime in the near future. But, um, you know, it certainly seems like, uh, you know, some of the... Um, frustration that we've seen in other countries is certainly spreading to Canada. And, uh, you know, coming out of COVID, I think, you know, there was a year or two where everybody was kind of in this, you know, we're all in this together mentality. We're going to rally behind mm-hmm. the flag. Uh, we're going to put these petty squabbles aside. But I think now that things are a little bit outside of that mentality now, all these frustrations that have been sort of bubbling for the last year or two are, you know, coming to the surface now. And, uh, you know, we're seeing even over the weekend with the deputy prime minister getting, uh, you know, verbally mm-hmm. assaulted in Alberta, there are more and more of these incidences where, you know, it goes from just annoyance to much more visceral, uh, you know, examples of anger. Uh, and, and again, you know, when that happens, here we go. The extremes uh, speak up on both sides and look what they've done. Oh, look what they've done. Look what they've done. Is anyone asking why, Dan? Is anybody asking why people are angry? Why, you know, what happened to the sunny ways? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of the reason for the polling here is to figure out what specifically is making people angry. I think the why is a little bit more challenging. I do think some mm. of it is that, you know, there was a, a lot of frustration from the last couple of years during COVID and now that we're out of it, or at least maybe partly coming out of it, but not in a, a great D-Day type moment where there's a big celebration and everything is back to normal. There's still a lot of things that are uh, causing people troubles. And I think, you know, inflation obviously puts economic pressures on everybody. You know, it's one thing if you, you know, airport delays impact some people, um, but everybody is buying groceries or filling up their their tank at the, the gas station. And I think when things like that go bad, uh, it becomes a stress point for everybody. And you talk about it with your friends and it kind of builds because you just hear everyone else complaining and then you start complaining and it just sort of uh, becomes a little cyclical there on some of these issues. Uh, I was kind of surprised over the Freedom Convoy thing that this was still uh, top of mind, nearly two-thirds for a lot of Canadians. Can you elaborate on that in any way? Yeah, that was, I mean, after uh, inflation and gas prices, that was the, the highest one on the on the index and actually one that had a lot of people very angry. There were still 40% who said they were very angry about that even six months later. So, you know, I think that becomes a bit of a proxy issue for some of these pressures that have built up during COVID. Um, I mean, the convoy itself was obviously an example of, of people who are very angry, uh, you know, voicing that anger. But I think in the process of doing that, that kind of triggered people on, on the other side of this who maybe have been frustrated by other Canadians who weren't following masking guidelines or weren't getting vaccinated and then and causing, you know, the, the pandemic to spread as a result of that. So I think that becomes a bit of a focal point for you know everybody else on the other side who had been frustrated for one thing or another over the past couple of years to to really kind of let their anger get out towards the, the convoy there. And, uh, you know, even, you know, like you said, even five or six months later, it's still something that seems to be a bit of a flashpoint there for a lot of Canadians. So this is, um, this is concern on both sides of this issue. It's not necessarily anger at the freedom convoy it's just the whole issue whether you're on this side or that side of it is that accurate yeah i think that's i think that's probably uh fair to say it's clearly a uh an issue that uh engenders strong feelings uh no matter mm. where you're you're looking at it from um, I, I was reading a thing recently, and 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 again, everybody's trying to everybody's talking about this. Everybody's trying to figure out how to fix it, and 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 what we do, what we can do to bring polarized people together and, and unite and such. Um, I, I heard I heard one discussion that said that uh, politicians are not listening to Canadians. They're not listening. They're following their own agendas. They're not necessarily listening to the plight of Canadians. I know you didn't cover that, but are you sensing that in your research? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of anger out there towards uh, both the federal and provincial governments uh, in the country right now. You've got 48% of Canadians who are at least uh, annoyed or moderately angry towards the federal government and 46%, almost the same percentage towards their provincial governments. So, yeah. you know, clearly there is that sense there that, uh, you know, things are not going great uh, in the halls of power across the country. And there is a lot of frustration uh, among Canadians. Um, and I think, you know, part of the reason we do research like this is, again, to, to shine a spotlight for everyone, uh, including uh, political leaders to look at data and see, you know, what is it that Canadians are angry about? And, you know, hopefully they take the cue from that and, uh, you know, take some steps to try to address those areas that are are causing the most, um, you know, most frustration and the most anger among Canadians. Because I think, uh, you know, political leaders who are in touch with what people are going through and how they're feeling are probably the ones who are the most successful, generally speaking. So uh, hopefully a little bit more of a spotlight on a few of these pressure points that Canadians are facing might encourage a few more uh, to take action uh, where they can uh, on these topics. 
Fascinating discussion. Dan Arnold with us, Chief Strategy Officer Polera, talking about their rage index. And yes, they're referring to Canadians. We have to work on that. Dan, uh, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating stuff. Be well. Thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking yesterday about the beer store now has more than 250 locations on Skip the Dishes after expanding its pandemic pilot project. Another example of how a global pandemic has changed the way we do things. Let's bring in Ozzy Ahmed, Vice President Retail, the beer store, in with us now. Ozzy, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Super, super excited to be here. Uh, to speak to our, our partnership with Skip the Dishes and the Beer Store. So, yeah, thank you for having me. So talk about the pilot project. Did this all come about as a result of the pandemic? Uh, definitely, that's part of it. Uh, but we're always looking for ways to better serve our customers. And I know through the pandemic, we looked at different ways of how we can connect with customers and get beer out to customers that a, couldn't make it. Uh, so this has been something that we've been working on for some time. And uh, yeah, I mean, simply our goal with this program is to provide customers access to more than, you know, a thousand brands and ease of shopping and, and you know, through the Skip app. And, and, you know, basically it's like cold beer delivered right to your front door fast. And how great is that? Right, Scott? Uh, no, yeah, no disagreement from here. Uh, what about cost? Would it be the same as any food or whatever? How do you arrive at the cost? How much extra does it cost to get this feature? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Scott. So the cost is actually the exact same. So whatever you buy for in the store is the same as you pay for online through the Skip app. Of course, there's a delivery charge and there's an alcohol handling fee, but the cost of the product is exactly the same. Uh, and what does that depend on? How can you give us a rough idea of cost or does that depend on where you're going, how far, yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah, no, it does depend on where you're going. So location plays a, a factor, but it's a, the delivery is about, about four to, give or take, 4 to $7, so it's very reasonable. So, uh, you, yeah, I know that uh, whether it's the LCBO or uh, it's the beer store or whether it's hospitality, they've been looking for years to try to loosen up a bit of the stranglehold that Ontario seems to have on on the on these industries. And obviously, during the pandemic, things have opened up quite a bit. Uh, do you think you uh, was it moving towards this anyway, or or how much has the pandemic sped up this sort of thinking? Uh, it definitely has sped up. I, I think there's a lot of consumers who've gone to like a, a digital or online uh, shopping experience, and I think they've enjoyed it. And and when we're in the pandemic, I know everyone was looking at ways to, uh, you know, ways to kind of modernize and, and uh, engage people in different ways. So it definitely, I think, accelerated just like remote working. You know, three years ago, who would have thought that would have been, you know, common common goal or a common practice. But uh, same thing with e-com and, and third party delivery. I think that's definitely helped accelerate things for sure. Uh, do, do you uh, are you surprised that that this got approval? Because again, a lot of the times government makes it very difficult to jump through these hoops. Uh, any challenges there? I, I know for for, for years, uh, you know, we've definitely kind of you know had conversations, and I mean, this is something that we've uh, you know we've advocated for, and we're very pleased that we're in a position where the government's allowed this to happen, and I think they see that providing access through third party convenes is uh, is important and. Uh, we're aligned with the government and we're supportive of their direction. We're, we're grateful that uh, we're allowed to allow, you know, we're allowed to, to do this and, and provide this convenience to customers. So it's a win-win situation for sure. 
I remember at one time it was, you know, don't expose people to it, to it. Don't make it easier for people to get their hands on it. The whole debate about grocery stores and such. Did you get any blowback from this? People saying, no, this is making it too easy for people to get their hands on the product. No, no, not at all. So, I mean, responsible sale is a cornerstone of what we do. I mean, it's yeah. so important to us. It's our core value. We do not sell it to minors and we do not to sell it to intoxicated people. And what I love about Skip is that they have that same high standard. So their drivers are smart certified. They believe in responsible sales. So, uh, I mean, it's really, it's an extension of who we are and uh, they've done such a great job. And and, and honestly, Scott, um, you know, we piloted with, you know, a handful of stores across the province. Customers absolutely love it. Uh, our mm. employees love it. Uh, everyone's happy. And, uh, you know, people are getting their beer fast uh, within like 30, 35 minutes. So under, you know, under the 45 minute threshold, uh, they're getting fast delivery. And, uh, you know, customers, I always tell, vote through their dollars. And they've been definitely coming back to that skip app and ordering again and again. So uh, we've had, you know, um, really positive feedback. And uh, we've had, yeah, we just, you know, like I said, customers and employees love it. And it's just a great convenience to have. So, again, just to point out, Ozzy, the drivers pretty much undergo the same training as somebody who would a server. They're going through the same sort of uh, certification process. So it, there's no link, uh, no loss in the link there. Exactly, right? So, we're, like I said, we hold responsible server right from the beginning of the transaction when our employees, uh, you know, build the order to when it shows up at the door. And if someone is, you know, can't prove uh, age of majority or is intoxicated, the sales refuse, the product's brought back. And uh, and that's the right thing to do. So we're like I said, responsible sales so important. It's our core value. We it's on our shirts. We have it on our shirts. It says we ID. That's how much we believe in it. So uh, you know that partner that we aligned with in this case is Skip. They have to have that same high degree of accountability, and they do. And uh, so I feel like you know what it's it's uh, it's executed exceptionally well. Uh, certain locations at this point. When are you looking at more? Are you? Well, I mean, for the hammer, I can, you know, I'm proud to say that uh, every location in the hammer uh, and Stony Creek and Dundas all have mm. skip availability. So uh, I, I'm really pleased to say that. So we're at 253 stores. Uh, we've rapidly expanded and, uh, and we're definitely going to look to uh, continue to move forward as, you know, it's going to be based on what customers tell us, right? If customers love the, the, love the platform, which, I, which from, from everything we're seeing, they do. Uh, we're definitely looking at uh, expanding and providing that service to other stores in the province as well. Ozzy Ahmed with us, Vice President of Retail. The beer store now has more than 250 locations on Skip the Dishes and plenty in this area. Ozzy, thanks for the time. Good luck with this. Be well. Thanks, Scott. All the best. Take care. Hard to believe tomorrow marks the 25th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana. And I don't know if you remember much about that way back when, or if you're old enough to, uh, I am. And uh, the the big issue at the time was the paparazzi. These uh, Princess Diana and her beau at the time were fleeing uh, paparazzi who were chasing them all over the place because the princess uh, was leading her own life at this time, had left uh, Prince Charles, and, and wherever she was going was always a big story. And they were literally fleeing the paparazzi when they had this horrific uh, uh, car crash in France and that took the life of both of them. Uh, have things changed in that respect? Have we learned from the death of Princess Diana? Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. She's here now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am, and that was a very apt song. I was hoping that that was the lead-in to our, our segment, Scott. I remember this was a big issue way back when, the paparazzi. We don't seem to be talking about it as much. Does that mean we've learned from it? Um, I think that Princess Diana's death definitely was a, uh, you know, a warning of how close paparazzi and how and how dangerous it can be. You know what, Scott, I also think that we as a society have become so used to paparazzi. Um, we know what their job is. We actually feed on their photos. We look for photos now um, in ways that we probably didn't look for them before, thanks to all the social media platforms. So the yeah. thirst for pictures has not really gone away. But you do bring up a very valid point with social media and the rise of that and everybody now having a state-of-the-art uh, phone or camera in their phone. Uh, now those pictures are virtually everywhere. I guess do these does this group of people need to go chasing anymore when virtually everyone's a reporter? I think the paparazzi probably still have their place because they still have access where we don't have access, such as at award shows. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and paparazzi do work for publications that need to feed the beast, Scott. They need to feed it 24-7 because if you are on a gossip site or you're feeding it towards a particular magazine where you're always updating um, information and pictures, that's what feeds the beast. And people love pictures. You know, people don't love reading. I mean, some people do, but the long form article is not as in vogue as it used to be. Right now, if you can get a picture with a cut line, well, sometimes that serves as a, an entire person's news cycle on a particular issue. So I don't think it's gone away. I think it's basically actually diversified and has had to be dispersed among many platforms because there's so many ways that we get our news now. How do we look at this whole incident now, 25 years later? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm a... I'm a royal watcher, Scott. I read the gossip. That's why we've got you here, Alyssa. <laughs> That's why I'm here. And I think that there's a lot of questions as to what really happened that have been not answered or have been answered in a roundabout way. And I don't think we'll ever really find out what really happened. I think that the paparazzi were, you know, were they just um, uh, a convenient excuse for what really happened? So I think that what we do remember is, is that, you know, Think about it. When Princess Diana, even before she became a princess, before she married Prince Charles, she really was starting to become one of the most photographed women in the world. And then when she became a princess, it was relentless. We saw her going to the gym. We saw her in the gym. We saw people yeah. putting cameras in the ceiling. It almost feels odd that, that she is not with us anymore because of the immense photographic record. And I think what people remember about Princess Diana now is, yes, she had her faults. And, you know, yes, we won't agree with everything that um, that she did. But, you know, she stood for a lot of great things. She was the first person to touch someone publicly uh, with the paparazzi there with, who mm. had AIDS. Yeah. Um, she supported... Uh, you know, the minefields by walking through minefields, you know, she did a lot of things and she was really the first Royal that helped us identify that not only is she a princess, but she's also a mother. So I think that there's a lot of things during the time when princess Diana was alive that made us actually look at Royals differently. And the only way we knew that Scott was by the pictures that were posted. 
Uh, when all of this happened, or after it all happened, uh, the tide turned for Prince Charles. Uh, people turned against him, especially his uh, now wife, Camilla. Has that changed? Uh, yeah, I think it has. I mean, at first, uh, you remember what they used to call her? The Rottweiler. Yeah. Uh, the British press went after them with a vengeance. But you know what? It seems that time heals all wounds, uh, Scott. I won't say that uh, Prince Charles is probably the most popular royal, but I think that sentiment towards him and Camilla has softened. You know, they televised their wedding. We felt we saw it on TV. We felt that the family came together for it and everybody was happy with it. And, I and you know, the Queen even said that when the day comes when Charles becomes king, Camilla will be queen consort. And I never thought we would ever see the day, given how that whole relationship transpired. But you know what? Uh, over time, people uh, aren't as vengeful, and people tend to have a bit of a softer edge to them. And I think that they've accepted who he is and who he is with. Uh, what about Harry and Meghan, since they left the royal family? Um, and again, tired of the intrusion, much the same with Princess Diana. So is it still there? Of course, it's still there. But I still think that they court it in a way. I think that they pick and choose their times. You know, I'm reading an article right now uh, that was probably an exclusive to People magazine. So I think that while the you know Prince um, Harry and Meghan have disavowed their royal uh you know, um, you know the royalness. They still they still play up on it, and they may not do their duties, but they still sort of play up on that lineage. It will never ever go away for Prince Harry, and you know there was a lot of uh, vilification of Meghan um, in the press, and you know whatever I may feel about her, it doesn't really matter. But I mean, I think that they're working hard to overcome that and just be seen as two people who want to support worthy causes. And that's an uphill climb, Scott. That's an uphill climb because while you're trying to do good, you know, the mainstream media and social media and, you know, regular people like, you know, you and me who post on social media will always have something to say about that. So it's not really, it's not really ever a win-win so, uh, so, um, situation, but I think that as they continue their lives and as they continue to grow into their lives with their children and their projects, we too may soften towards Meghan Markle. Alisa, uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert tomorrow. Hard to believe, marking the 25th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking a lot about um, Bell Media this week and the firing of Lisa Laflamme, uh, one of Canada's favorite uh, uh, newscasters. And um, with just the way the whole thing was handled and the lack of information, uh, nobody really knowing what happened. It was really just a business decision, as they say, in these sorts of things. Uh, then all of a sudden, the, ter- the, uh, the discussion turned to one of ageism and going gray on the air. And then the double standard uh, with male and female anchors and such. Um, so where is this going and how does this brand recover from this moving forward? What can we all learn from this? I'm sure it is a discussion in many business classes. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. 
I haven't talked to you about this, Marvin. What is your first reaction when you first take note of, of what has happened and the way it's been handled? Obviously, Lisa Laflemme get let go, and now the person that made that decision is on leave, uh, and there's an internal investigation going on uh, in regard to their newsroom. What's your take on all of this? Well, I'm, I'm confused, frankly. I'm confused. So let me go through a couple of the things you just said. Uh, standard operating procedure in something like this that hits the headlines is the idea of calling for an internal review. So full marks, good idea, make sure it's transparent, make sure you share the results and act swiftly. But here's the problem. This is the third review conducted at CTV News in the last three years. Now, one of them was focused more on CP24, sort of a sister operation, uh, and that also involved Mr. Melling. This is the man who was Lisa Laflamme's boss. So there was one review involving him. There was another review at CTV News. And now we've got the third review. Reviews are great, but they're only good if they do something. So there's my first problem. Problem number two, Mr. Melling's boss, uh, Mr. Bibich, uh, has come out and said, I have reviewed the situation. And, and I can assure you that Lisa Laflamme was not let go due to ageism, sexism, or gray hair. And I go, good, glad to hear it. Those would be terrible reasons to let her go. But you may have noticed Mr. Bibbish didn't say why she was let go. If it's, mm-hmm. is are you saving money? Was she getting too expensive? Uh, you know, what, what, what led to it? So we know why she wasn't fired, but we don't know why she was fired. And then the third thing is even Mr. Melling himself. He issued a release that said, uh, I'm taking a leave to be with my family and focus and refocus. And okay, I get it. Mr. Bibich said that he's on leave pending the outcome of the review, meaning conceivably the review could exonerate him and Mr. Melling would be back. So I'm just confused. I don't still to this day know why Lisa Laflamme was let go. And therefore, we don't know of any of these other allegations. Their argument, by the way, CTV's argument is that um, in the severance package that they're giving Ms. Laflamme, uh, they're prohibited from revealing a lot of things. So, you know, isn't that convenient, too? Hmm. Uh, and does this all now go back to the lesson learned here? If you don't uh, give some sort of storyline, if you don't explain what happened, the public will then create their own, whether it's ageism, sexism, color of hair, what have you. Absolutely. And, you know, the media... Uh, Scott, and and in a sense, you are an example of it. I guess I'm a little example of this too. We come into people's homes and and we sort of become a member of the family. And when you decide to change that for whatever reason, uh, you need to let them know what's going on there and what's happening. You you know, let me just give you a terrible example. Suppose Lisa Laflamme did something terrible. Suppose she sexually harassed somebody and you go, oh my gosh, that seems so out of character for Lisa. But oh, if she did that, well, now I understand why you had to let her go. When you just let her go, you've got to have your rationale, especially in something high profile. This would be the same way in politics. If Justin Trudeau were to suddenly remove a a senior cabinet minister with no explanation at all, then we'd invent one. So, you know, we always have to be aware of these people and their status in the community. And I think the people in general want to have a reason for these things, and we just still don't have one. But normally, uh, prior to the pandemic, a business decision was a good enough reason. And usually what that meant is money or a changing and a changing landscape. So is this about the above, uh, ageism, gender, uh, hair color, or is this about money and a changing landscape that the company refused to uh, address? 
Right, right. So again, let me just say it back to you in that simplest way possible. If they had said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Laflamme is now getting paid a million dollars a year. We think that's too much given the revenues we've got. And for cost saving measures, we're letting her go. Okay, we'd understand. We might not like it, but we would understand that was your business rationale for this. Uh, if you don't give a rationale, then we pick on something like the fact that she hasn't been coloring her hair. Now, my problem with that argument is that that happened about a year and a half ago when yeah. we declared hairstyling salons as non-essential businesses. Lisa wasn't able to professionally get her hair touched up. So she said, okay, I'm just going to let it go natural. Years and years and years ago, Bob Barker did the same thing on The Price mm. is Right. After a hospital stay, he wasn't able to get it done. And people said, you know what? We like the gray. So, you know, if it was because she went gray, then the time to have let her go was a year and a half ago. Not a year and a half later after we'd all gotten used to that as her sort of new standard hair color. So this is the thing. If, whatever your rationale, whether it's trivial or important, you should share it. And if you don't, then we're going to fill the void with, with whatever we think is the right answer. So how does Bell get out of this? Well, uh, again, I think it's pretty easy here. Transparency. You've got to say to people, okay, what was the rationale? Now, if if you now look at it and say we had a bad rationale, oh my gosh, we got rid of Lisa because she she added five pounds to her figure during COVID or whatever it is, then hire her back. Oops, we made a mistake. Pay for it. If you have to give her a raise, pay for it. Fire Mr. Melling, get behind it. If there is a good reason, however, then you've got to get that story out there too. Otherwise, you're going to lose the PR war. And there are alternatives. Uh, um, Again, Scott, let me just be very blunt here. You work for an alternative. That's global news. Another is CBC news. Uh, viewers have choices. And if you do not clarify this for them, they will take their business elsewhere. And losing those eyeballs, especially today in the world of mass media, that may be something that really hurts your bottom line. So you've got to come out with your story. And either it's a good story and we'll all say, oh, well, now that we know, great decision on your part. Or if it's a terrible story, reverse it, admit you made a mistake and move on. But leaving it like this, it's just going to be chewing you away for the next two or three months. All right, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, the Bell brand, and what they've got to do to move it forward and get out of uh, the quagmire that they are in uh, surrounding Lisa Laflamme. Do you think this would have uh, happened? Uh, do you think there'd be this much attention paid to this if this was happening maybe three years ago prior to the pandemic? Um, good question. I, I think we've all, over these last couple of years, become more attuned to our media, and we need mm. them more than ever for as news sources. It's been a turbulent couple of years. We need to know what's going on, whether it's with COVID or now monkeypox, other things like that. So we brought more people into our family, and we really, really do appreciate them. And then when you do this upheaval, I think you you're going to miss them more than you would have two or three years ago. So mm. I think this is a this is actually a good news story for CTV. People were watching this newscast. It was the number one news or an evening news broadcast out there. And when you make a change like this, it just really resonates with people. Uh, would have resonated a few years ago, but even more now post-COVID. Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Thank you, Marvin. Be well. I will. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We're going to bring in Ian Lee, uh, bring in Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, to talk about Russia and Starbucks and McDonald's and such leaving, and uh, them just kind of spinning off a similar product and relaunching it there. But oddly enough, as we're uh, opening up this uh, interview, we're getting news that Mikhail Gorbachev, former leader of the Soviet Union, has passed away at the age of ninety-one. Uh, Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Doing very well, thanks. Ian, would it not have been around the time of Gorbachev when McDonald's and all these companies started showing up? Yes. Um, they actually showed up a little bit before. Um, in fact, um, uh, 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 President Kohan as he's, uh, of McDonald's Canada uh, at the time, I'm talking back in the early 90s, mm-hmm. wrote a book about uh, McDonald's going to Russia, and it was McDonald's Canada not McDonald's U.S. People would say there's no difference, but there was mm. because McDonald's U.S. Chicago World Headquarters did not want to touch Russia with a 10-foot pole back in the 80s during communist times. So they gave a carte blanche, basically, to um, uh, Mr. Cohen to explore it on his own. He did, and he wrote a book about it called To Russia with Fries, real quite a clever <laughs> title, you know, a spinoff of the James Bond uh, movie title. And... Um, but it, that's that's really a distinction without a difference, except to give Canadians some credit. And uh, it, but it was really under Gorbachev that the whole uh, perestroika and Glasnost, which was opening and transparency, occurred. And and Gorbachev will go down in history and he, uh, as the man who ended the Cold War uh, after seventy-one years of communism uh, collapsed, and Gorbachev allowed it to collapse. Um, he didn't try and use the military as previous leaders of Soviet Union had done, invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, invasion of Hungary in 1950, I think it was nine. Um, they used force and uh, brutal force to uh, keep everyone under the communist thumb. When there was an uprising under Gorbachev's time, he said, no, I'm not sending in the military uh, into Poland or elsewhere. And so he will give, get the credit for ending the Soviet Union, the very uh, end or the termination that Putin today says was a catastrophic geopolitical mistake. So you can see there's very strongly different views there. But Gorbachev will get the credit for, as I said, ending the uh, Soviet Union as we know it. And then that, that led on to all the problems that have occurred since. What do you replace it with? And then they struggled under Yeltsin, and then they finally came up with this autocrat uh, killer <laughs> uh, called Putin, uh, who has run uh, Russia with increasingly uh, draconian uh, hand uh, since then. Uh, I, I was going to ask you how the leadership has changed, but obviously you've just explained that. Now that Gorby has passed on, is his era reflected in Russia? Those were times of, uh, you know, times of inspiration, times of vision, whereas now it appears they're going backwards. Will this um, carry any significance, do you think? Um, yes and no. I mean, there's been a big debate about this and everything I'm reading. Of course, I'm reading in translation. I don't read Russian. Um, I don't speak Russian. I've taught there. I've been to Russia. I've been many, many times to Ukraine. This was in the 90s, uh, mostly. Um, and uh, I've been fascinated by it. Uh, because of that whole period of, uh, of history and the confrontation between East and West. But, but to your point, very quickly, um, my, everything, my read of everything I've read is that, is that Gorbachev became 
persona non grata. Um, you know, he was widely reviled because he ended the Soviet Union, and there was great nostalgia uh, amongst many Russian-speaking people uh, for that period because they felt they'd been humiliated by the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And this narrative was certainly promoted from uh, for the past 20 years by Mr. Putin. And it was very successful narrative from everything I've read in The Economist, which is very prestigious, The New York Times. I mean, there was wide reporting that Putin's narrative, uh, that Gorbachev screwed it all up, a uh, terrible event, was the accurate interpretation. However, Putin, as we all know, did what he did three or four months ago. And I, I think it's fair to say, without any sense of uh, exaggeration, that Putin's brand is in deep, deep strategic decline. Uh, more and more Russia, there's more and more reporting that the Russian elites, the Russian military, uh, the Russian oligarchs are blaming Putin privately, privately, uh, for the catastrophe, the catastrophic invasion. They thought it was going to be a cakewalk, you know, three days they were going to conquer the country, and now they're in this quagmire, and they're actually calling it a quagmire. And they said, you know, apparently it was reported in the Telegraph only two days ago that the military have told Putin he has no good options left other than uh, retreat, a humiliating retreat, shades of the U.S. and Vietnam in the very late 60s, early 70s. And this is going to destroy Putin's reputation. So what I'm trying to say, Scott, is the story is not yet over. We don't yet know how Russians are going to uh, be, how, what they're going to think about this uh, for another two, three, four, five, ten years, because you know Gorbachev just died. He uh, destroyed, uh, you know, brought the Soviet Union to an end. But one could argue that Russia, the uh, Putin, is really uh, destroying mm. or bringing to an end the reforms that he put in place after Gorbachev. And so, what's going to replace him? I mean, Putin when he passes from the scene. And nobody knows the answer yet. So I think the story is not yet finished. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, final Soviet leader, ended the Cold War, dies at 91. So as a result, we never even got to talk about Starbucks and McDonald's and the uh, spinoffs and knockoffs and such. Uh, and as Ian said, it's ever-changing. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Fascinating discussion, Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Great talking. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Griffia. Yes. What the f*** are you doing in Alberta? You f- traitor. F- Get the f*** out of this province. You don't belong here. You're a f- traitor. You f- yeah, go ahead and hide. All right, guys. You got a traitor in the f- elevator. Don't touch me. Go. We are leaving. Touch me. We are leaving. Do you love the? Do you love her? Do you love Christy Freeland? No. Get. I f- not. Don't tell me to get. I'll walk out my own power, okay? So back off. Back off. I know this gentleman here. That country shouldn't even be allowed in Alberta. She's destroying this country. Your kids are going to have no future. Okay? I hope you get it. Somebody's got to get it. Because we're the only ones fighting for this country right now. And it sure as hell isn't her. There you have it. Will Weber spinning the clip of uh, what happened in Alberta a few days ago. Uh, Christia Freeland harassed, and you heard it, the barrage of insults coming at her from 
uh, an Albertan who is upset with her politics. Uh, obviously, you want to condemn anything like this. Nobody deserves to be treated like this. You certainly have the right to, uh, you know, to voice your public uh, approval or disapproval, but this is taking it one step too far. Uh, that being said, it certainly is not an isolated incident. Uh, we've certainly seen it happen uh, and increase over the years, uh, whether it's male or female. I'm not sure, uh, you know, perhaps there's more reports from women experiencing this. Uh, I think this reaction would have been the same, whether it was Krista Freeland or Justin Trudeau, who was getting on that elevator, although it certainly appears that women are getting uh, harassed more than men are. Uh, in the field. Let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently the president of Investigative Solutions Network and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me. So uh, what are your thoughts on this incident that happened? Is it time for Canadian politicians to re, uh, re-examine their security? Yeah, I think absolutely it is time. I actually commented on it yeah, yesterday with my family when I saw that, uh, that clip with uh, Krista Freeland. It's unbelievable how polarized things have become, and uh, really in today's day and age that you have such a high-profile political figure such as the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada that is not being escorted by security detail with threat risk assessments and whatnot. It's unfortunate, but it's the reality, but it's quite shocking that it hasn't already come to that. Uh, Do you think this will change things moving forward? Uh, absolutely, I think it will, and I and I hope it does. Uh, again, it's unfortunate it has to, but you even look at over the United Kingdom just last year or, or whatever whatever it was, mm. there was the murder of a politician over there. Um, and uh, we're not far off the same type of society that there is in the UK, and you look at how polarized things have become, you just look at what happened in the convoys in Ottawa and everything else, and it's uh, it's time to revisit our security for our, um, for our national figures, for our politicians and whatnot. Um, absolutely, she should have a security detail with her. Uh, oddly enough, it was Christia Freeland who was talking to, I believe it was in regard to uh, the trade discussions. She was talking to U.S. officials, and they were surprised she didn't have security detail, saying that she rode her bike to work. Um, and, you know, she, we just don't live in that type of country, she said. Uh, what has changed? Are you surprised at that answer and that even before this uh, attack that, that the, some don't feel the need for security? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not surprised at her comments because I, I would have agreed with her up until a couple of years ago. Listen, it wasn't mm. too long ago that I was in Ottawa myself and you walk right up to the apartment building, right to the yeah. doors. Yeah. You can't do that in the United States. You can't walk right up to, uh, to Congress. You can't walk right up to the White House, right? The um, But things have changed and it's the polarization of our politics, I think, is what's doing that. And uh, so you're seeing that it's becoming more normalized for these uh, people to have these confrontations such as this. And it's absolutely wrong, but it's unfortunate the reality that we're in. And we have to change with uh, with the times. What does or would this security look like? Is it about, you know, having a lot of guys in suits walking around you? Is it about just somebody who's investigating from a security lens where you're going every day and what you're doing? Well, in, uh, in Minister Freeland's uh, example, I think what should happen with her is that there should be ongoing threat risk assessments. And the RCMP certainly have the, the ability to do that. And they have the VIP security teams available. She should have an escort, a uh, security escort to it that is uh, uh, laid on based on the threat risk assessment. And certainly people shouldn't have ready access to her in the lobby of a hotel in a, uh, in a, an elevator like that. That's a confined space. And she, uh, nobody should be able to get that close to her in such a public setting like that. Uh, there's one thing when you're out and about. There's another thing when you're at work or at home. What about at home? 
Well, at home, they would do, uh, typically they'll do uh, risk assessments of their, uh, of their home, like uh, alarms and cameras and uh, the posture of the, uh, of the property itself. And if need be, they would actually uh, place uh, security at her residence, like out in the driveway or on the property. Again, we're talking about the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, the second highest position in our political structure. Um, she, she needs some protection. How do you decide who gets it? Who doesn't? Does everybody get it? Is it only the select few that have high, higher profiles? How do you figure that out, Sean? It goes back to the risk assessment. So the, uh, certainly our intelligence services and our law enforcement services, they'll be uh, monitoring and tracking these people and whatnot. They'll have some pretty good intelligence on who's who out there. And it'll be best based on the risk assessment. There'll be certain, uh, there'll be certain positions that just automatically require, like the prime minister, deputy prime minister, remember the... Uh, the head of the opposition, uh, those kind of positions, the governor general, they just, uh, just by virtue of their positions, probably need some level of security. And the rest could be done on a, a kind of a risk assessment on, an, on a needed basis. Sean Sparling with us, retired Deputy Chief Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently President of Investigative Solutions Network, talking about the need to change the security protocol for politicians uh, in this country. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for your time. Now, you might remember uh, the discussion around the Line 5 pipeline, uh, which Dan McTabe will explain to you in just a minute. Uh, but it, it basically goes through Michigan and into Sarnia and such, carrying um, uh, energy, natural gas, whatever, back and forth, oil back and forth. Now, the Canadian government is invoking for the second time in less than a year a treaty that will force the American government to negotiate the fate of Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie announced uh, the treaty on Monday, pointing to the significant impact shutting down this pipeline would carry for Canadian jobs and such. And then goes on as if she's going to sell natural gas, which is very bizarre considering earlier this week our Prime Minister is very well documented in saying he just doesn't see a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas. Yet he's going to court to fight to keep this pipeline open. That would seem like a pretty good business case to me. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, a former a Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, got a lot to unparcel there, and uh, yeah. I'm explain sure this to me. <laughs> explain yeah, it to me, Dan. He says he doesn't see a business case for natural gas, yet he's fighting with the U.S. government, Michigan specifically, to keep a pipeline open. How is that not a business case for? <laughs> well, I guess it comes down to splitting hairs, which he's very good at doing. But uh, look, he's not a scientist. He doesn't know anything about energy. I know that because I still have the letter from 2010, where he wrote saying, you know your stuff on consular and consumer and uh, energy issues, and we need you back in caucus. Uh, that's before he decided that uh, there are other more prevailing issues like uh, abortion that were far more important to him than anything else. So now we, of course, have a country where, uh, for the longest of time, and up until really the last minute when Enbridge was basically saying it's do or die, did the federal government bother to, uh, I don't know, do a little stretch and finally uh, write a letter? For five years, I had been warning uh, in my previous work uh, with U.S. Uh, 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 emergency officials who kept pleading with me to say, for God's sakes, get your government of Canada to wake up and smell the coffee. Michigan is going to shut you guys down. And uh, it won't just hurt us, Michigan and uh, Ohio and 
uh, neighboring states uh, as far away as uh, uh, you know uh, Pennsylvania and even uh, the other, towards the other direction, Indiana, Illinois. It's going to hurt you Canadians and smarten up because it's not just about uh, oil getting to your refineries, making petrochemicals, making gasoline, making jet fuel, making train planes, automobiles go. It's also natural gas liquid, not liquid natural gas. Let's you know, turn this around a little bit. That's propane, which uh, okay. places like Quebec love and need, and the rest of us do, and it's does the Upper Peninsula in uh, Michigan. So there we go. We have a government that has uh, really uh, provided two faces to the same equation. Uh, already invoked this treaty once. Why do we need to do it a second time? Uh, well, the treaty is uh, paramount. The treaty is an uh, obligation at the federal level between two countries that have agreed to maintaining pipelines that currently exist. Trudeau does, does not like new pipelines, but he wants to keep the old ones in place because he knows full well that uh, even the wokesters who drive around their EVs need to have natural gas, I need oil because you can't make an EV without that. You can't make a solar panel. You can't make anything without fossil fuels. This is the irony, of course, of the Greens and the alarmists and, of course, their friends in Ottawa who think they can have it both ways. Uh, by the way, that's not working out very well in, in Europe. So what we're now seeing, we have a scenario that's playing out uh, where the Prime Minister is having to use, you know, the, the really the, the, <laughs> the nuclear option in ensuring that uh, the Line 5 pipeline doesn't shut down and no other state jumps in and joins in with uh, Governor Whitner or her Attorney General who's around a lot longer, Dana Nessel, and tries to pull the same stunt. But again, the Americans, like everyone else, is confused. A country with the third largest provable reserves of oil and gas in the world still can't uh, uh, make an argument that there's a, there's a business case for getting product to market and using pipelines. So, you know, it's confusion, not by them, but by us. Imagine being an outsider looking at the actions of this government, including the Germans saying, what is your major malfunction, Canada? So, look, congratulations and kudos to all the dummies out there who uh, voted for him and the NDP coalition that he's a part of. Well, and again, this, you know, you know and, and obviously, let's be honest, U.S. is a very friendly neighbor, unlike Russia to Germany and such. But <laughs> this is the same sort of thing. It's dependence on other people to get your stuff. And then complaining, you know, your hands are clean, but theirs are dirty. You complain about that, but yet you're depending on them to deliver you energy. Except that the United States killed the Keystone Pipeline, which would have brought them a lot more heavy oil, which they desperately need because there is a diesel crisis. Now, for trendies out there that don't think anything of it, look at the truck that's passing by delivering your, uh, you know, your woke coffees and, uh, and, and donuts and other things that you like to eat. They're all delivered by trucks driven by diesel. There's a shortage, a critical shortage now of diesel in the world. So, yeah, I think the relationship between Canada is great, but it's conditional, and it's conditional not on that treaty that was signed in 1977. It's conditional on uh, the two so-called progressive governments on both sides of the border waking up and smelling the proverbial coffee, because what they've done, certainly in Canada's case, having this, as large the reserves that we have, having built out uh, pipelines, having had 17 or 18 uh, LNG pi- uh, projects scuppered by this federal, liberal, woke, green government, the world is, is asking and begging Canada to get back on track, smarten up and get this energy to us because the alternative is Russia. The alternative is a global, not just energy crisis, but now a very severe security crisis. That's not going to be a problem, Dan, because there's going to be an alternative any day right now that's just oh, going yeah, to replace yeah, it yeah, all. Yeah, um, so, 
Uh, and believe me, I'm all for R&D and renewables and, and getting to the bottom of this. But, you know, shutting off the tap ain't going to make it happen any faster. No. Germans um, so have my, a trillion bucks and have got nowhere to show, got nothing to show for it. So I, I can't believe I can't believe the predicament Germany has gotten themselves in after being a so-called leader in R&D in, in green renewable energy. That being said, where is this Michigan deal going? Because obviously this is the second time in less than a year that this has happened. So is it just a matter of time before it's shut off? Uh, well, it's a good. Someone's going to shut it off sooner or later, uh, and it's going to happen by some courts. But I mean, in Britain, in the federal government are in a much stronger position because they've actually, in the case of the federal government, showed some some interest in defending this, probably for good reason. Because uh, having forty fifty percent unemployment in Ontario would mean that uh, even the uh, even the bra- most brazen, uh, even the most uh, committed of liberal voters, cult voters, would still vote for the liberals were it not for the fact that 30-40% of people might be out of work with this pipeline. It's that serious. You shut down your airports, Hamilton, shut down Toronto, uh, you'd have to shut down most of your locomotives, you'd have to shut down your, uh, your, your chemical sector, you'd shut down your propane, which is needed for industry, for tow motors and manufacturers. It would be a disaster. So I guess that's uh, kind of forced, it's forced the hand of... Uh, of uh, green alarmists and other bedwetters that uh, you know, this is a pipeline that you cannot do without, for which our economy is reliant and very heavily dependent upon. Uh, and the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, uh, in announcing this uh, invocation of the treaty, called this a significant impact, shutting down the pipeline, killing yes. Canadian jobs and bills. The economy and energy disruption and damage to Canada and the U.S. from a Line 5 shutdown would be widespread and significant. This would impact energy prices such as propane for heating homes and the price of gas at the pump at a time with global inflation making it hard. This is unacceptable. This does not sound like the current government. Uh, so why the hell did they kill, you know, the Energy's pipeline, the tra- the uh, uh, the Northern Gate pi- what, Gateway pipeline? Why did they spike through regulations like C48 and C69, bills that were designed to make sure that we build no more pipelines in this country? Look, these folks have uh, come a long way on the road uh, of conversion in a little place called Damascus. We call this Ontario. But uh, sooner or later, uh, people are going to have to realize that Canada can no longer continue down this road of trying to play both sides, which is what the federal liberal government has done. You either, you know, you either do your stuff or get off the pot, and that's as simple as that. You either you're for pipelines, for Canadian oil and gas, or you're for the destruction of the country, uh, not just uh, politically but economically. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. As always, Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. All the best. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly heard the trial and tribulations of people uh, going uh, in and out of airports and <laughs> more specifically trying to get a passport to even get to the airport. To just You got to wait for a passport, then you got to get to the airport and wait again uh, over and above the normal uh, procedure, uh, obviously. Uh, there has, well, there was actually a report yesterday saying things are... Um, improving um but not much to report other than that so uh will erskine content producer for hamilton today on a search for a passport and decided he was going to go out and do it today and will is with us now will thanks for the time i hope you're well 
Ah, uh, well, I just got here. I, I ran from the place. I finally got finished, and I'm I'm here in the building. So first of all, where are you going? You need a passport. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm going down to the states actually. Uh, first time in several years, uh, just for a bit of a family thing. Uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, kind of um a little bit last minute. And so uh, my passport uh, had, uh, you know, fall- fallen behind on that. So I needed to do the whole get, uh, uh, you know, uh, fast track it, which means you have to go to one of the locations that allows you to do that. And that means you got to end up camping out, basically, in the middle of the night, uh, like you're w- waiting for a new Star Wars film. <laughs> so did so you uh, so you got there early and lined up. What happened? Uh, yeah, so I got there, at, uh, I got up uh, before 4 this morning, I got lined up uh, around, I'd say, 5.30ish or so, and that was running late by my schedule. There were already people there with their folding chairs, their their blankets, and everything else, and uh, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, they were, set, they were set up. Now, one of the great things, right from the start though, people who had done this before, have been leaving behind their folding chairs. There's mm. some that are already provided by the Service Canada people, and then there's just people leaving their chairs because they know someone else is going to have to do this the next day. <laughs> hey, feel free to use my tent. There it is. It's set up. Exactly. I can't believe it. Exactly. And, and it's, I mean, that was what struck me was there's already a, a communal sense of humor about this. Everyone was in pretty good spirits because we were all sleep deprived and we were all going through this, this same experience. By the time the, the security guard comes out at, I don't know, I guess it was about seven in the morning, which was still about another hour and a half before anything really got rolling. But the security guard comes out and kind of checks in with all of us, lets us know if we need to use the washroom, uh, we can get in and, and kind of gets everyone prepped for how it's going to go once the day starts going. Now, you know, people are showing up at eight o'clock and we've already got a line going almost uh, around the corner of the building. Man. So uh, what time the doors open at nine? Uh, the doors got opened at about 830 uh, by then, we'd already had an employee come out who uh, distributed uh, uh, little tickets to uh, to a few of us, to some of us. Not everyone in line got our ticket. Where They were going to have to wait even longer. Uh, and the, the line got kind of broken up into the people who were there for, say, picking up their passport or doing something else, or people like me who were uh, applying to get uh, get it, uh, you know, put in gear. And, uh, yeah, doors eventually open 8.30, and they start shuffling us in. And uh, even then, there were people still pulling up into the parking lot and going wide-eyed when they saw the line. And I heard someone who, uh, in line with me, who had tried this uh, tried this on Monday morning and found it was even worse. They'd, they had to come back and, and try it again today, and they finally got in the building. Uh, but once I got in... Uh, everything moved very smoothly. They've got they they've got uh, at least a few months of practice now with with <laughs> dealing with the backlog. And uh, I got in. I got actually uh, in and out in about an hour. Um, well, that's not bad. But you had to line up for several but before you getting had in. Had to line up if you want yeah. your chance at getting in. Again, it, it's it's like the stories of uh, of friends of mine who camped out for Lord of the Rings movies and stuff like that. You got to show up at about. I you you gotta show up at four. I think that's yeah. what some of these people had done. If that's if you want to be first in the door, you know. So what time did you eventually get out? How did this end? Uh, I got out at about nine forty-five. I got out the door and I headed across the road to the closest uh, place that sells caffeine I could find, and I uh, gave myself a copious amount to get uh, get myself moving for today's show. So showed up at roughly four thirty-ish. Got out at nine forty-five-ish. 
that's about it. Oh, man. And so do you have passport? What do you have to do now? Is it mailing, being mailed to you? What's the story? Uh, I went with the uh, pick it up at the location. That uh, was kind of the nice middle path. It's going to it's gonna go pretty quickly. I didn't pay for the extra to get it done by the end of this week. Uh, I have a couple weeks, and they'll come in, and it'll be in with enough time uh, for if there's any interruptions before I have to actually head down to the States. Are you? Are you fearful that uh, come the middle of September you won't have it? Because we've heard lots of stories of people that, oh, I've been waiting since April. Yeah, I made them uh, promise three times over and stopped just short of a pinky swear. (laughs) Uh, There you go. All right, so it looks by the middle of the month you may get it. I I think so, and again, as I said, they're running pretty smoothly now. They've got enough practice with it, so I'm confident that it'll work. And again, it was a pretty uh, jovial experience all around from everyone there. All right, just get there early. Will Erskine with his content uh, producer for Hamilton today. uh, In line to get his passport. Way to go, Will. Glad to see you're still upright retaining fluids. More or less. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing, as well as Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last word. Hello, Scott. My name is Connor, and with the, the Premier and the Prime Minister meeting today, let's just hope that instead of looking for a typical Band-Aid solution, they look for, at the very least, an atypical Band-Aid solution. Yeah, baby. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.